Amen and amen. Good to see you, Gospel Hope. <laughs> man, yeah, yeah. You know, we become a culture that's so accustomed to the automatic responses like, how are you? And then everybody goes, good, or that kind of thing. But that was a new one, right? Good to see you, like a full sentence. All right. Well, good stuff. It is uh, a pleasure to be back before you again and be able to stand before the sacred desk, as I like to call it, and share God's word with you. Um, what an interesting thing, uh, this series called Messy. And here we are. If you've ever read the books of First and Second Corinthians, uh, some of God, uh, some of Paul's most comprehensive work written to this extremely messy church. If you've ever read First and Second Corinthians, you'll know that you've got um, you've got some of the most sordid and interesting episodes of church discipline. You've got uh, division. You've got divorce. You've got um, uh, folks uh, in the body taking each other in the same church, taking each other to court. Uh, you've got issues of idolatry, abuse, and misuse of the body, uh, um, uh, underutilization or overutilization or improper utilization of the gifts by the time we get over to the chapter 14. I mean, this is a messy church. You would think that if God wanted to impress anybody and really pull us forward, that he would showcase an example of an extremely perfect church. Well, guess what? If you've ever seen the church get its employee evaluation over its report card over in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, you'll know that there wasn't a perfect church. But God is not ashamed to call messy people his own children because he's got a plan. As a matter of fact, he takes messy churches and uh, does something awesome and powerful to them to project to the world our deep need for a Messiah. So churches are not collections of perfect people who have wonderfully figured out life. We're collections of messy people who have decided to take our mess and trade it in for the great Messiah and his righteousness. And so I'm looking forward to walking with you this morning through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. If you've got your Bibles and you are note takers, you are, uh, we're going to have some fun together. Good thing we have some tables, right? Um, so if you did not get your worksheet or your crayons, please uh, see one of the hostesses. Um, just kidding. Let's, uh, let's get down to, uh, to work here and uh, go before our God. Father, in the name of Jesus, we need your help. That is the understatement of the year. We need you. We need you, oh God. Not just your empowerment, not just your enablement, not just your supernatural ability. We need you. Lord God, would you meet with us? Would you come among us? Your, your son, Jesus, promised that if we would obey, that, that you and the son and the spirit would come and make your abode with us, oh God. And we just pray that as we meet your requirement for obedience, that, Lord God, we would gather. We would not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that as we would open your word consistently, as we would pray, as we would, Lord God, open up the gates, Lord God, by, by, by opening our mouths with hearts that are turned toward you in earnest praise. Lord God, would you please allow us to experience the fulfillment of the promise of Scripture? that you would come and make your abode with us. Allow us to know your presence. Lord God, nothing else would satisfy our hearts more. Lord God, uh, Lord God, even uh, regardless of the quality or the type uh, of the message that we get this morning, Lord God, would you just be here with us? Satisfy our soul's deepest longing like never before. Glorify yourself now, Lord God, through the teaching and edification of your people. And please teach even the teacher teach even the teacher. Um, uh, this is the time of year or the season where in most of your neighborhoods or in any neighborhoods, definitely here in the southeast, where the grass is coming in full-blown. Uh, much landscaping is taking place. In my neighborhood, I've seen several trucks come through with palm trees, so everybody's getting their, their whole deal set up, the rocks, the stone, the mulch, uh, the, the, the gnomes and the fountains and all these other features. 
But, uh, uh, but the grass is the thing I don't want to focus on is because in our neighborhood, there is always this unofficial competition of lawns. No one's going to get a blue ribbon or a certificate at the end of the month. There's going to be no sign or placard that goes in the yard that says yard of the week or yard of the month. But we all know what's up. Because as we enter the opening of the subdivision, we all look left and right, see who's got a new lawnmower for the season. Oh, Gerald's got the new zero-turn John Deere. Catch up, buddy. I've got the Cub Cadet 52-inch. You know what I mean? We're all just kind of like sizing each other up, just kind of slow rolling through. I was like, oh, look, you know, Gerald's going with the new pattern this season. He's doing small circles rather than the large wavy arcs. Okay, I see you, Gerald. Right? There's a subtle competition, and we're all checking each other out, you know. And then the wives, they're like spies because they go walking in the morning. And so they get this up-close-and-personal look to see who's doing what, you know what I mean? But, uh, but, but essentially, in the competition of lawns in our subdivision, you probably have this in yours, there are, I've found that there are three basic categories of competitors. And I'm talking specifically about lawn quality, not landscaping features, okay? So I'm not talking about stones, rocks, and that kind of thing. I'm talking about lawn quality, sheer lawn quality, all right? So when it comes to lawn quality, there's three different groups in the neighborhood, in almost every neighborhood. There's the group of people who have said, weeds are a part of life, and I'm not going to fight it. And as long as I keep my grass cut low enough and I edge it up, it all looks the same from a distance. Whether it's clover, broadleaf, or crabgrass, who cares? It's all green, and it all blends in. And if you cut it low enough, frequent enough, no one will notice that your lawn sucks. Right, right. We've got that's category one. Category two are the people who do care about lawn quality and they do care about the fight against weeds. But but the way they do it is they wait until summertime when they see all of this aberrant growth, unwanted growth coming up in the lawn. And then they run over to Lowe's, Ace and Home Depot and buy every spray and pellet under the sun. And they're just out there working feverishly trying to kill it in the moment. But what they've misunderstood is that there's a third category of us who understand that the real fight against weeds begin in the fall. The real fight begins with a pre-emergent treatment, a series of treatments when no one else cares, when no one else is working, when no one else is thinking about it. During the fall is the best time to fight weeds. Now, just before you decide to fold up your notebook and your purse and say, this is not what I came for. I thought I was coming to church. I'm learning about lawn care. Here we go. In much the same way, that we treat weeds in the lawn, I believe we also treat sin in the life. There's three categories of people. There are those that say, you know what, sin is just a reality in my life. Temptation is just a reality in my life. None of us are perfect. It never goes away. And if I keep this stuff cut low enough and I edge it up and keep my life well manicured, only those who are close enough to me will see that this is a low-quality life that really doesn't measure up to the Lord's standards. And anybody who's close enough to see my messy lawn, they don't have any business being that. They're trespassing. They're not welcome here anyway. As long as I look good before the larger public from a distance. It's all green, right? Then there's that other group that, that, that as they see things creep up in their lives that they do not love, that they do not enjoy, that they, do not, that they know do not honor the Lord, they run out and in a moment and they buy every book down at Lifeway or off of the CBD website or any other book that they can find from their, from their reading group that has been recommended. This is how you fight sin in your life. And they start to clip off behaviors in the moment, like the people who get the endless amounts of aftermarket sprays, trying to capture it, not realizing that if you really want to fight sin, you've got to start in the fall. And that's what I want to talk to you about today is if God expects us to fight sin and to win, 
what exactly has he given us? I believe that Paul, or the Holy Spirit through Paul, does a beautiful job of outlining at least four things that God has given us to help us fight the right fight, not the wrong fight. So the Lord, there are some things that need to be clipped in the moment. But the real fight against sin needs to begin with a more comprehensive appreciation of what happens at the fall and how God has responded in the fall. You see, uh, as early as the fall, that's right, when, when, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the Lord began to immediately implement some things that let us know that the ultimate solution is coming. We, we were told that the ultimate solution to sin was going to become uh, through the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the adversary. We immediately found out as the Lord uh, 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 gave them uh, coats of skin that there would have to be some kind of substitute to really address your sin. There would have to be something that would have to die to really satisfy God's ought against us. We, as early as the book of Genesis, we have been seeing God's, God fighting in the fall this issue of sin. And so here we are as New Testament believers, and the Lord has given us in full view four things that I believe to help us fight the right fight. And uh, so that's the title of today's message is to fight the right fight. And the big idea is I believe that we should take advantage of all that God has given us to win against sin. I want to read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 into your hearing here real quick. And I want to, um, and just as I read that, there are going to be four things that I hope will leap off the page for you, my note takers. And if they don't leap off the page, I'm going to tell you what they are anyway. You ready? Let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that all, and now they all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased with, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, examples for us, examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some, of, as some of them were. As it is written, people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. What a mess. But we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some uh, of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things were given to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let no one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. There are four things found in this passage I believe that God has given us to help us fight and win against sin. They all start with the letter E, and they are as follows. You'll have them on your screen. Number one, the Bible says that God has given us examples. You probably saw that pretty obviously, that God has given us examples. Number one, Number two, the Lord has also given us something else. He has given us exhortation. He's given us a certain exhortation. I'll explain in more detail later. He's given us exhortation. 
Number three, the Lord has also given us an exposition. There's an expose, an exposition of scripture that God has given us to help us win against sin. So we have, uh, one, we have examples. Number two, we have exhortation. Number three, we have exposition of scripture. And number four, we have been given an exit strategy. We have been given an exit strategy. This is where we're going to spend our time today as we walk through these 13 verses. I hope it is a pure blessing to your heart. I'll be the first one to admit that when I first read this passage growing up as a kid, I would always zero in on verse 13 because that seemed to be the, 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 the locus classicus. I didn't call it that when I was a kid, but it seemed to be the best text. It seemed to be the one that I really needed. It seemed to be the, uh, the silver bullet against temptation. I just zeroed in on verse 13. But before you get to verse 13, there's so much more that God has to offer that is powerful for us and we don't want to miss. And so if you're still looking for your, your place, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And so let's begin to unpack these things that the Lord has given us. As I mentioned at the beginning, the, the first one is that God has given us examples. He's given us examples. Examples may not feature the same problem found in your test and in your trial, but it will model the same procedure. You need to follow it. Has anybody here ever taken a standardized test, an SAT, an SAT? I never took the bar exam or anything like that or the MCATs. I don't know if they do this on this or not because that's not your boy's lane. But, 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 but in the little California achievement test that we took in Birmingham to make sure we could graduate to the third grade, I'll never forget they would have these, they would have these um, um, uh, examples. They would have these examples. And the examples were like, oh, okay. Now, the example, the exact example was never found below on my test. But the exact procedure that I needed to follow in order to succeed on the test was there. And that's exactly what examples are designed to do in the Bible. So many of us may look at the examples of the lives of the people in Scripture and say, well, this is not contemporary enough for me. I'm just going to narrowly focus in on the words of Jesus he seems to be more my speed. Paul is too gritty and over the top, and the Old Testament is too culturally removed. But Jesus, the one who you love, he endorsed, quoted, and fulfilled the Old Testament, regularly talked about it, and he also endorsed those apostles who wrote the New Testament. So if you're saying you don't like the Pauls of the world because they're too gritty and you don't like the Old Testament because it's too far removed, what you're really saying is you don't like what Jesus liked. We need to have a comprehensive appetite for reading the Bible, but reading it as New Testament contemporary believers, and that is not trying to export or import all these promises and propositions to make them ours and misappropriate the Old Testament scriptures, but we do need to read the Bible with gospel eyes, and here's what that looks like. If you look carefully at the example given to us in this Old Testament situation, follow it carefully because you're going to hear some gospel vocabulary offered to us by Paul as he walks through or looks at an Old Testament scenario. Now, this is a staggering thing to behold when you consider that the Corinthian saints would have been a predominantly Gentile congregation. But yet he is going to take a group of people that couldn't be more culturally and theologically removed from the episodes of Israel's life and give it gospel centrality or gospel, or gospel uh, application. Here's how. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, wait a minute, he connects them to the Old Testament saints relationally, our fathers that were all under the cloud. You know what he's talking about? The cloud that led Israel by day and the, and the, uh, and the, and the pillar of smoke or whatever, the, the, the flame that did, it, did so by night. He's talking about Israel when they, when they went through the exodus, right? He says they all passed through the sea. He's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea coming out of Egypt. He says that those are your fathers. Oh, he says our fathers. Right? He says they passed through the sea and they were all, here comes this gospel language, baptized into Moses 
and into the cloud, into the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank. And he says that that spiritual drink was Christ. You see what Paul is doing here? So then, listen to this and follow this very carefully. Notice what happened in the life of Israel, if you know anything about them. As they, as, as they had their various messy bouts with sin and idolatry, right, sat down to drink, rose up to play, and God killed 23,000 of them in one day. As they had their various bouts with sin, they would always happen as Israel would forget about what God had done in the past. But not just what he had done in their immediate past, what he had done in their ultimate past, how he had delivered them out of Egypt. Anytime God would send a prophet to remind Israel of their sin, regardless of what generation it is, he would always say something like, hey, this is the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God who brought you out of Egypt. He would always go back to what I call ground zero of his guarantee to deliver them. It was as they passed through the Red Sea that God was saying, you are mine and I am yours. And the terms are, it's by grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve it. You didn't buy it. You're just a little piddly people being beat up upon and you're enslaved in Egypt. But I'm going to come and get you based on my loving grace and promise. You see, the crossing of the Red Sea is a gospel analogy from the Old Testament because it was foolishness to those that thought crossing it was something to do, but it was the power of God to those that were being saved. You understand that when they, when they, when, 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 when one group of people, when they, when they ran smack dab into the middle of what God was doing in the Red Sea, it was a death sentence for them. They were judged, but for others, it was a brand new sentence, a brand new chapter of life because they were being saved. The, the red crossing of the Red Sea was their gospel. It was their ground zero. It was the one thing that they had to grab hold to and never forget. But guess what? Every time Israel geographically, emotionally, and intellectually drifted from ground zero of their deliverance, every time that thing didn't register high in their hearts and in their minds, they were most susceptible to sin. Or as I would say as one of my uh, primary points here is this, the greater distance there is between the gospel and us, the lower our resistance is to sin and temptation. The greater distance between us and the gospel, the lower our resistance to sin. You, you, can, you know what I'm talking about. The greater distance there is between you and gathering with the saints, the lower your resistance is to sin. The greater distance there is between you and great gospel truths like you ought to be praying on a regular basis, the lower your resistance is to sin. The, 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 the greater distance there is between you and the, and, and, and the terms and conditions under which you, came, you got saved and came to know Christ, the greater distance there is between you and that, the lower your resistance is to sin. It's true throughout history that when people forget what God did at ground zero of their deliverance, they are always have extremely low resistance to sin. And then think about how you feel about yourself in moments of repentance. You'd be like, I can't believe I've been so stupid to sin like that after everything God did for me. Emotionally, you just got close to the gospel again. Intellectually, you got close to the gospel. When Israel got far from the gospel, their resistance to sin got low. But what's interesting about their resistance to sin getting low is that they could be right around the corner from the Red Sea, still hear the waves crashing, dolphins, <laughs> right? They, they could still hear the dolphins of the Red Sea if there are any, right? This is probably, bio, you know, biomorinically inconsistent, but anyway. But the bottom line is they were fresh, and they were sitting over there and be like, man, we wish we were still sitting by the meat pots in Egypt. You brought us out here to kill us. What was happening intellectually? They, geographically, they were close to the Red Sea, but intellectually and emotionally, they had forgot. Not that they couldn't remember, but they had failed to hold on to and save her. They had gotten far from ground zero of their deliverance. The same example applies to us. 
Don't let yourself get, don't let there be any distance between you and the gospel. When we gather together as a church, we're not just uh, 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 sharing sermons and singing songs. You are, you, are being, you, you, you are being bathed in gospel truths. You're being drawn closer to the cross emotionally and intellectually. When you gather amongst God's people, this is so pivotal and it's so important that we come together as often as we can. And don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together because the further we get away, the lower is our resistance to sin and temptation. Let me talk about sin and temptation for a moment, or temptation in particular. In this text, you're going to hear things like temptation and trial, temptation and trial, right? A temptation can be a specific lure toward a, a, a sinful act, or a trial can be a, just a certain pressure or season that we're feeling in our lives that it may not be a lure to a sin, but it may be pressure that would make us prone to withdraw faith from God, which would also be sin. And so temptation comes in two different or, or several different forms, as my brother Ryan told you earlier. I want you to understand that, that for us, while we may not have a Red Sea, we do have a cross. We have a place where we need to regularly reacquaint ourselves, not only just with the language of the gospel, but with the truths that extend from it. If we want to increase and build up our resistance to temptation and sin. We want to strengthen ourselves. We want the, the truths of the gospel to be fresh in our minds. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 10. Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not worship and indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not Put Christ to the test, as some of them did. You see what he just? You see how he had just imported gospel language? Now, the, the, the name of Christ didn't appear in that scenario back in the Old Testament. But what Paul is doing is helping us understand that that story was applicable to you. These are your examples, and this is not only your example, but these are also your exhortation, your your exhortations. When you look at uh, the the whole uh, uh, section of text, there's a lot of do nots, uh, especially when you go to verses seven through uh, seven through ten. Do not be idolaters. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. We must not uh, put Christ to the test, and nor should we grumble. For many people, this is what they think Christianity is. They think ground zero of Christianity is just a group of rules telling us what not to do. And that's not the case. Christianity is far more, relationship with Christ is far more comprehensive than what not to do. But we cannot escape the fact that there are things in there that tell us what not to do. And these are exhortations that are important for us. You see, exhortations provide us with behavioral guardrails when our faith is being assailed. Exhortations provide us with behavioral guardrails for when our faith is being assailed. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, is, is when the Apostle Paul uh, uh, showed us it, uh, that there are times in our lives when our faith is under attack and there is no uh, uh, multifaceted strategy in order to escape these moments. Or, or, or as he says here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand, stand firm and stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth that you and, and put on the blessed plate of righteousness and having the shoes and as shoes for your feet, having put on uh, the readiness given by the gospel of peace that in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith that you may be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the eagle one. Sometimes all you can do is stand and then stand there for that's the exhortation of scripture. This you just gripping the guardrails, right? 
I want you to consider this. For some, have you ever been driving and uh, there was a torrential rain and everybody in the car started breathing hard, so now you got foggy windshield. You're in an unfamiliar area. The Alexa or whatever, Alexa don't do GPS, but your GPS is talking and telling you to do stuff that you don't know how to do. You can't see five feet in front of the car, and all you know how to do is just, where are the guardrails? Let me not hit that. Where is the center line? Let me stay away from that. There are times in life when we are encountering storms like crazy, and the only, co- only commands we need are not multifaceted, turn here, turn there, but it's like, keep it steady, keep it straight, keep it slow, and just bear down, and we'll get through this. That's what the exhortations of Scripture do. They tell us what to do when we don't know what else to do, and the Bible tells us that we ought to grab these guardrails. Do not be idolaters. Do not indulge in sexual immorality. Do not give in to what the flesh is beginning to do. Do not put Christ to the test, and do not grumble. These are the exhortations of Scripture. Let me tell you, when you, how do you know when your faith is being assailed? How do you know? I'll tell you when. You see, Israel, when they sat down to drink and rose up to play, they had this moment. One of their first major gaffes was that Moses was up on the mountain, and he was having a conversation with God. And meanwhile, they are downstairs or down the mountain or wherever, in the basement of Israel, wherever they were, right? Y'all know the story? He's up on the mountain, and they said, well, we don't know what happened to Moses, Why don't we take off our gold chains and our jewelry and boil it together and make for ourselves a calf? Idolatry always becomes the substitute when we don't know what else to do or when we feel like waiting on God is impractical or implausible. Hear me carefully. Trust, listen, our faith is being assailed the moment that a seed plants in your mind that says that trust in this moment doesn't seem logical. Where's Moses? you got us out here by ourselves. We need a God. Let's get one. Our faith is being assailed when trust doesn't seem logical or practical, when, when our brains can't calculate what God is doing. Our faith is being assailed when, when waiting no longer seems plausible. Our faith is being assailed when contentment in the way God says do it is no longer enjoyable. Our faith is being assailed, young folk, when you and your love interest are doing your best to walk before the Lord, and you begin to question the practicality of not living together because you could save so much money? When, when, when you're trying to walk in holiness and you begin to question, like, well, what's really holiness? I mean, what is it really? When God's way doesn't seem plausible and practical, when contentment in the way God is doing things no longer seems pleasurable, when contentment in him, Lord, this is so frustrating, and we both love each other anyway. (laughs) Have you not been there? Have you not been there? Am I the only person, am I the only person whose original wedding date was in December and it got moved up to August? (laughs) Cards on the table. So when, wait, when contentment doesn't seem enjoyable, when waiting doesn't seem plausible, when God's plan as he's laid it out doesn't seem logical, this is when your faith is being assailed. And this is the time when all you need is some exhortation. You better not. No, you won't. Mm-mm. You're not moving in there. No, you shouldn't go over there. I don't care how gentle the invite was. Don't go over there because you know your flesh. You know what's going to happen. Am I in the house? Amen. So then, I'll just say this, our, our faith is most vulnerable 
when what God is doing is the least understandable. Our faith is most vulnerable when what God is doing is the least understandable. And that's why we need the guardrails of exhortations. Just some, some clear, don't do that. Don't do that. We need that. And one of the great exhortations of scripture here is just not to test the Lord. I call testing the Lord dancing around the edge of the Grand Canyon. I've been to the Grand Canyon twice, and man, it sure does look attractive. That's where the best shots are, is to hop that fence and get over there. But oftentimes, that's how we play with sin. I'm resilient. I'm a robust believer. I haven't sinned in quite some time in this way. I think I can go to the edge and not fall in. And this is what sin does. It, it invites us into in the practical. It invites us into our own logic over against God's cautious logic for our lives. He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows us better. We know ourselves. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 together. Verse 11 and 12 says, now these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for our instruction, written down for our instruction. So the third thing that God has given us is exposition. On whom the end of the age has come, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Listen to me, fighting sin is not about being robust and vigorous. It is about being smart, wise, and submitted. We've all fallen down, gone down this road of telling ourselves a story about how resilient we thought we were because of how many copious amounts of word and, and devotion that we've had and how strong our uh, accountability groups are and et cetera and et cetera and how we're able to bounce back and avoid sin in various other areas. And it is when we get to a place of feeling personally righteous, personally strong, and personally robust that the adversary is like this, hoo hoo ha 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 ha, looking for whom he might devour. I found his weakness an overutilization of strength. And so the Bible tells us that we need to understand the cleverness of how temptation actually works. We need an exposition, the exposition of sin. You see, the exposition of temptation, that is, the exposition helps us to understand the anatomy of temptation so that we can see it and call it, and it calls us to greater sanctification. So every episode of temptation is actually a call to a greater degree of, of sanctification. So every temptation is, 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 is where the adversary has highlighted an area of my life that has not been fully gospel-saturated, not fully surrendered to the cross. And, and, and so even though he's highlighting it, he is not the one that's going to make you sin, because we're going to see this in a minute. But, 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 but when he highlights this area, it is a call to greater sanctification. So when I see myself being tempted, I'm like, ooh, okay, Jesus, this is another part of my personal inventory that needs to be surrendered. I thought I, I thought I was standing firm before you, but I see you've shown me now an area that needs to be resurrendered. And so when we, when we think about this, when we think about the exposition of Scripture, it's going to help us here in, in John chapter 1, verses 13 uh, through 15. This is so helpful. You've all seen this passage before. Let's read it together. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So you can't blame God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by the devil. Mm -mm. But each one is, person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So I can't, blame the, I can't blame God and I can't blame the devil when I'm tempted. Now, I know that God is involved, and we see how he is involved in providing a, uh, an exit strategy and exhortations and examples. God is involved, but he can't be blamed. And I know that Satan is a roaming lion. He's just doing what devils do, right? But what am I supposed to do? Th this passage does a beautiful job of unpacking for us. You know, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full blown, it brings forth death. It does a beautiful job of giving us the anatomy of temptation. Now, so when you understand something at the, at the anatomical level, 
if that's the right word, or whatever, the level of anatomy. When you really open the hood, it's really helpful. Let me help you understand. Me and the wife could be out at a restaurant or anywhere, just any public venue, and he'll, she'll hear somebody cough. <coughs> and she'll go, oh, that's Kleinfelter's number three syndrome. And I'll be like, what? No, he just needs to go to the bathroom or cover his mouth. But she, she recognizes cough types. But how? Because she understands the anatomy of the cough. She understands what a different types of cough sound like and what it could and what the implications are. Do I understand different types of temptation and what the implications are? The Bible, through exposition, wants to give us that. So, so understand this. The, the Bible wants us to see clearly that temptation comes from areas of my life that are either hesitant to or hardened against the truth of the gospel. I'm saying this to me. You can get in board. You can, you can share it if you want to. But, but temptation comes from areas of Rod Dewberry's life that are hesitant to respond or either hardened against the truth of the gospel. I have decided that in this great salvation that God has lavishly loved and poured out on me that I want to keep, hold on to, and protect certain areas of my life. I have grown to enjoy. It has become my signature sin or a welcome weakness. It is hesitant to the gospel. I get enjoyment from it. It is, it is hardened against it. Because even, despite all the consequences that have rolled out of my life against the way that I respond in a given moment, I continue to go back to that area over and over again. So it is becoming scabbed and calloused to the gospel. This is what temptation preys upon, these areas of my life. But God has not left us without witness. He didn't just give us exposition. He's not just standing at, the, at the, the whiteboard of heaven with all of us gathered in the lecture hall. He actually sends his Holy Spirit to deliver the lecture from the inside. You see, like, a, like if you've ever been to a, a sporting event like a Braves game, you have that guy who's coming down through the aisles and he's going, popcorn, peanuts, cold beer, hot dogs, come and get it right now. What the Holy Spirit does is when we are being tempted, is walking up in and out, down the aisles of people's lives advertising the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. Guess what? It's free, already paid for. Don't you want it? You want some love, joy, peace? No, man, I ate before I came. You sure, man, you don't want that? No, no, I, I snuck in some food. But that's what the Holy Spirit's job is. He, he's constantly a herald. He, the Bible says that he bears witness to us that we are the children of God. He ain't whispering. He's bearing witness. His job is to come into our lives and, and, and to bring this fruit forward. And, each, and, and all of the fruit, the fruit and all of its expressions and aspects, they are, they, are, they are direct responses to areas of my lives that have yet to fully respond to the gospel. If I'm struggling with lust, the, the Holy Spirit says, let me offer you some self-control. You interested? It's already paid for. It's free. You just got to eat it. You, you have fits of anger and, anger and rage. You stay frustrated with people around you all the time. Is that what's tempting you right now? Let me, let me offer you some peace. You want it? No, I don't like that. That's bland. You got anything with salt? That sounds so boring. Fits of rage sounds so much more awesome. Stuff of Netflix. Who wants love, joy, peace? It's so sappy. But this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. And we overlook the fruit of the Spirit because it seems so simplistic. That can't be the possible solution. No, she needs to think about her attitude when she approaches me. That's the solution to my attitude and my, my anger issues. The reason that I'm bitter and I can't forgive is not because I need to practice more love. It's because she needs to watch her mouth. 
when talking to me. This is the DNA of sin. The moment, the moment that Eve got rolled up on by God, it was like the serpent, he did it. God rolls up on Adam, the woman. God rolls up on Satan. You know, that's how we do. <laughs> but when we are, when, when, when the Holy Spirit reminds us that we need the fruit of the Spirit, we always got another finger to point at somebody other than this. And the Holy Spirit was like, man, here it is. It's not fancy, but let's start growing this fruit in your life. Have you noticed that in the, in, in the very list where the fruit of the Spirit are given to us, that they are juxtaposed or contrasted or just a few verses down from the works of the flesh? So they are intended to be counter-agents. Bible says you can't do both of them at the same time. So if I'll just, if I'll just gear down, if I'll just bear down and, 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 and focus on implementing the fruit of the Spirit in my life, this becomes a part of my fight. But I need to understand the anatomy of temptation, that that's what it is. It's opening up my life and exposing an area where I need greater implementation of gospel truth, not to be hesitant, not to be hardened, this is where I'm, temptation is an invite to, not tragedy, it's an invite from God into greater sanctification. Because once that area is sealed up and sanctified in your life, you'll notice that there are certain things that you're just like, man, I don't even respond to that anymore. And that's what we all want to get to. So, I'll say this, apart from repenting and replenishing these areas of my life that, that have obviously shown gospel gaps, apart from repenting and replenishing these areas of my life with the fruit of the Spirit, we are advertising to the adversary our openness to reproduce the fruit of the, uh, the, the works of the flesh. So when I reject the fruit of the spirit, I am advertising to the adversary that I'm open. I'm open for some of your work, the work of the flesh in this area. I'm open. But when we draw near to God, the Bible says the same will flee. So when I draw near to God, it says, yes, I'm going to bring the fruit here. Not just the works of the flesh, then the adversary backs up. We missed out on another area of un, unsancti- un, you know, unredeemedness in this person's life. So nevertheless, let's move on to our third, our fourth and final thing that God has given us to win against sin. And it's the exit strategy. In verse 13, the verse that probably most of us are ultimately feel intimately familiar with, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So God has put a cap on it, a ceiling. A governor. God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. So God has put a cap on the amount of temptation that, a, that humanity in him, that in him, the amount of temptation that a person in Christ can handle. God has put a cap on the intensity. But then he goes even further and says that by his grace, he has customized also to make sure that you yourself, I myself, will not be tempted above that which you are able. So, so any temptation that I've experienced in Christ, it was winnable. Guaranteed, and God put his stamp on it that he was the one who provided the winning strategy. So, the Bible goes on to say, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Escape and endure. Sometimes God will deliver by getting us out of a situation. Sometimes he'll just crawl up in there with us. Like the three Hebrew boys when they were in the flame. The Lord just came in there and stood up with his arms folded as a fire extinguisher. Sometimes, it, it, sometimes God's plan is to endure. Sometimes it's to bring us out. But here we go. The exit strategy is an expression of God's faithfulness and an advertisement of the gospel's effectiveness. 
It is not only a personal expression of God's faithfulness, but it is an advertisement of gospel effectiveness. Through the way we respond to temptation and take advantage of the exit strategy, we are saying to the world, Jesus is real. The gospel is powerful. The resurrection is, is working in me. Come and behold and look at some of this. Get you some. God is using us as his model, as his people to say to the world, this is why you also need Christ. Look at my messy people who are even able to overcome the messiest of circumstances. They didn't do it because they read the right books. They didn't do it because they went to the right conferences. They did it because they believe in the right Christ. Our exit strategy made so powerful by the gospel. When you think about the heart and soul of the gospel, the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, consider this. The life of Jesus is this, fully immersed and tempted in all points as we are. Fully immersed. Jesus didn't just dip his toe in the water. Jesus didn't come out of some meteor that fell on the other side of town and this baby that busted out and came over a hill with ripped abs. And then some family picked him up and started to take care of him. And now he's got all of these weird feats that he's doing throughout high school. That's not Jesus. He was born fully human, fully God, fully human. Didn't just dip his toe in the waters of humanity. He lived out the life. Therefore, the sovereign God is fully sympathetic to the weaknesses that are inherent within these time-captured fleshly temporal bodies. Fully acquainted with those things. This is why the gospel matters. Because that same God who is sympathetic, a high priest, he then places limits on the temptation because he knows how much a human being can tolerate. But also, the same God who died, the same Jesus who died for us, he has taken, listen to this, Satan's best shot and the Father's greatest beating on our behalf. Even the consequences, even though he did not sin, he still died as though he had. Weathering the storm of God's wrath, and even Satan's mockery. He knows exactly what you're going through. He is not just sympathetic, but here's the deal. He beat it. He didn't just go through it. He beat it. So he not only knows what it means to go through it, but to come out of it and to win. The death of Jesus Christ. It's not his work on the cross. is not just limited to him. But he invites us into it because the same power that raises Jesus from the dead, we are invited to participate as we place faith in him. And then, of course, the resurrection. It is a boast of God's victory, of Jesus' victory over sin, death, and the devil. But he doesn't just boast. He doesn't just stand on a hill with his hands on his own hips, having worn a name that is above every name. He says, and guess what? I want you all who place faith in me to become joint heirs. The same power, the same ability, the same glory. I want it to be at work within your lives. The gospel, immersion of ourselves in it, is so critical to our winning against the temptation toward sin. So what are the four things that God has given us? Examples from our predecessors in the faith. Exhortation, when we don't know what else to do, just grab hold of these guardrails that have been given to you. Exposition, make sure that you're clear on the unpacking of the anatomy, this, your self-awareness. Unpack the anatomy of the human being and what makes us tick according to the Bible. Unpack the anatomy of temptation and sin and understand what Satan is trying to do in your life so that you can be a wise and savvy soldier of Christ. And then, of course, he has given us an exit strategy. 
in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, every believer is without excuse for continuing in their sin. That's tough, but I am without excuse because the full equipment has been given to me. And again, not just on the chalkboards of heaven. God just didn't hand me a pamphlet and said, read this and come back. He actually has written his law on my heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. We can win against sin, y'all. We can win against temptation. And we can recognize all of our temptations when they come. You don't have to become like, ooh, I'm about to be tempted. Ha ha, what you about to do, Jesus? But we can say, you know what? Here's an invite to greater sanctification. Lord, yeah, come on. Sanctify me during this season. What are you doing? What are you saying? How do you want to be revealed? How do you want to be known? How you want to be understood? What crevices of my life have yet to respond to the greatness of the gospel so that I can gain greater likeness to you in the way that I go through? This is what God wants to do. He doesn't just want us to win over sin. He wants us to become more like his son as we advertise to the world the victory and power of the gospel. You thought perhaps you had to work miracles or maybe even speak in tongues. But no, if you can show the world the moral miracle of consistently coming out of your mess through the power of the cross, it will be a great advertisement for the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and we praise you this morning for everything that you have to offer through your word. It is an endless gem like a diamond as we turn it in various ways under the light, Lord God, of your son. We see new glimpses of your glory. Help us now, O oh God, to fully and more completely implement what we've learned today into our lives that we might be even more victorious. Not, for our own, not just for our benefit, and, uh, but also for your glory. And also, Lord God, as an advertisement to others who need to know you because their lives are, are messy also. We need you in this most incredible way. And no one else can satisfy this need but you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.